Pretty good stuff there, huh? Yeah. Anybody know the name of that song? Huh? What's the name of the song? Smoke on the Water. Okay. All right. Anybody know the name of the group? No. Who? No. No. Deep Purple. There's your dope smoker in the crowd. There he is right there. Very good. <laughs> Man, yeah, that was Deep Purple 1972. And that became one of the most iconic guitar, uh, you know, playing licks, whatever they, musicians call it. But I mean, that little part of that song was like iconic. We loved it growing up in the 70s. And believe it or not, that little part of, part of the music from Smoke on the Water will become an illustration that's going to uh, talk a little bit about the next thing that we need in reimagining our lives. One of the things that we have to have in order for it to be completed as we're continuing with God. So we started two weeks ago talking about what do we need to complete this reimagining of our lives inspired by God. We talked about the need for discernment. We gotta find out whether or not it is a God dream or is it just a me dream. And then we also learned last week about the power of community, that even the dream itself has community built into it. There is no just fulfilling a dream only for yourself, but yet through that dream, we bless other people, and during that uh, reimagining of our lives, people bless our lives to see it become uh, a, a real reality in our lives. So today we're going to be looking at another truth that comes from the story of Abraham and from that song. And through this journey, God has been stirring Abraham with a new idea about life, about what it could be. And I hope that's what God's been doing with you, where you've been reimagining what God can do in your life and how your marriage could look, how your relationship with your kids, your finances, what America could look like, and begin to reimagine with God. And so Abraham decides that he's going to go on this journey with God. Um, but after the reimagining has taken place, and all the encouragement that he gets from God, and all the faith development, Abraham arrives at a critical juncture on whether or not the vision becomes reality. And I think it's something that we, the junction that all of us come to. It's the junction where most dreams end up dying. It's, it's the junction where most imaginations or wishers or dreamers um, and admirers get left behind. It's that, that critical place in our journey with God where it, it either happens or it doesn't seem to happen in our lives. So I'll, I'll let this juncture be described, this junction be described by the story of Abraham, and, and we'll kind of discover it together. Reading from the story in Genesis, the story of Abraham continued this way. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid wood in order and then bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar and on the top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
Genesis 22. This seems to be the point when our preconceptions on how the promise will be fulfilled are challenged. I don't think there's any part of the story where Abraham's like imagining this particular moment. And a lot of us will find ourselves in a journey with God where the situation that we're in doesn't look like a God thing, doesn't look like something that God would lead us into. And we're kind of perplexed about the situation. It's the point where Abraham is finding out whether or not he really wants Isaac or he really wants the God journey. You know, what a tough place to be. It's like, God, you're not going to make me decide here, are you? But it really is a point where where, um, he finds out whether or not he's just in love with God because, you know, God gets him Isaac and God gets him a car and God gets him a good job or or whether or not it's it's really about God because that's the one I started the journey with. It's the point where we have to decide if we're willing to pay the price necessary to see the reimagining of our lives fulfilled when we see it really happen. So I don't want you to get too distracted by the story because if, if, you, if you're here and you've just heard this story for the first time or you're hearing it again and, and it's not, you're not familiar with it, you really must think God's whacked for asking Abraham to do such a thing. It's funny, every time I may talk with one of my brothers about God, um, they always cite this story. It's like, well, I don't want that kind of God because he's the kind of God that tells Abraham to kill Isaac. And, and I'll be honest with you, yeah, if that's the only part of the Bible I got, that's a whack story. Um, but let me just kind of release you from this a little bit by explaining some of the cultural things that are going on. At this time, the Canaanites and the Moabites and Hittites and, um, are are these tribal pagan religions and uh, peoples that are around Abraham. Abraham was taken out of Babylon. He, was, he went through Mesopotamia, and he has arrived in, in Canaan, and he's been there a long time. So the cultural expression around Abraham to a deity is that when you enter into a contractual agreement with an individual or with a deity, that there's got to be a sacrifice that takes place. Uh, it's kind of equivalent to the modern handshake. And so um, what he does is um, Abraham only understands this cultural language, so God is going to speak to Abraham in the language that Abraham understands. I mean, we all realize that God doesn't speak Hebrew, right? I mean, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't speak just Hebrew. I mean, the Bible wasn't written in Hebrew because God spoke Hebrew. He didn't, God didn't give them the Hebrew language. They, that's what they spoke. I mean, it's it kind of made out of that Canaanite period, that, all that stuff, that the language emerged out of that, and God just spoke in that language. We know God doesn't speak only in English or King James English, and, and some people are silly about the King James Bible because they think that's the original language the Bible was written in. It was really written, in, the New Testament was written in Greek and, and, and uh, translated into Latin, and then it kind of made its journey to us here. But the bottom line is, is that that was the cultural language that, that Abraham spoke, is that when you entered into a contractual agreement with a deity, uh, an element of that contract would be sacrificed for the purpose of making the agreement stick. It's kind of like all the things that you go through when you're closing on a house. Um, they would not make sense at all to an ancient Canaanite, but they make sense to us. You know, I... The, the illustration I gave in the first service, I didn't think it was going to go over because I was a little scared about, uh, you know, but we're not afraid of saying stupid things up here. That's how I make my living. Um, so uh, 
you know, sometimes I, I love the way black people interact with each other, okay? I, I mean, I do. Uh, some of you are like, you can't say that. It's like, <laughs> well, no, don't be scared. Don't be scared. Nothing weird's going to happen. Um, but particularly when you see black guys, particularly in sports, you know, the way they shake hands. And I have, you know, been around sports and I've, you know, I, I like the whole handshaking thing. And I just can't figure it out. Um, and so whenever I, I've like shook hands with, with a, a black guy, it's, it's like I get lost in this, you know, um, I've kind of like attacked their hand with this slap, slap, bang, bang, bing, bing, boop, boop, bop, bop, and, and, and I don't even know what I'm doing. And they'll laugh and they're like, dude, you are so white. And, and I'm like, yes, I don't know how to do it. But, but when you see those guys together, they're bam, bam, slap, slap, bam, bam. And I'm like, that is so cool. I wish I could do that. But it's a, it's a cultural expression of interchange of brotherhood. And, uh, you know, I just kind of do, hi, how's your day today? It's good to see you. I'm white. You know, but that's how we culturally exchange. Well, this is an exchange that God is speaking to Abraham because it is his cultural handshake. Uh, later on, we're going to find out that God makes laws forbidding this kind of transaction of the sacrifice of children. We're also going to see that he wipes out a whole tribe of people because they burn their children to the, god, the pagan god Moloch. And so we know God's not in it all the way. And that's why at the, at the, the point of just about to kill Isaac, God's like, okay, that's enough. Enough handshaking the way that you handshake. I don't kill kids like this, okay? So, so he just, you know, stops it right there. But, but it was kind of a, a way to find out, are you in this with me? Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to take the journey? Are we in agreement where we're going from this point on? So though there's many takeaways from this story that you've probably heard in some really good preaching, the one that I want to take away is it's kind of framed in a question. Was Abraham willing to pay the price necessary for the journey to move forward? Or was the journey going to be just this, this arrival at Mount Moriah, and then that's as far as it goes, because I ain't giving up my Isaac. Because you know what? I got Isaac, I got the house, I got the car, I got the job, and God, you're telling me to sacrifice something, you know, give up something, do something differently, do it a different way. And it's like, nah, I'm not interested in, in messing this up. And so we're just going to end the journey right here. And I think God um, is asking us the same question, is are we willing to pay the price to keep the journey moving forward, what we've reimagined about our lives? Um, or, or this, are we just in love with the idea of a better life, or are we willing to pay the price for a better life? Now, just think about that. I mean, we all have an idea where, where all the events that have happened to our past have, have um, uh, gone away, where I'm not affected by this event in my past or this addiction in my past or this relationship in my past or this bad decision in my past. And, 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 and we can all reimagine that all going away, can't we? We can all imagine, oh man, I, I could get over that event or I could get, over, get through this, that situation with my father or whatever it may be. 
And then there's the, the other question is this, but yeah, are you willing to do the hard work to get over it? Or are you just going to, hey, I'm, I, I can't do that. I can't revisit that. I can't think that. I'm, and then we get stuck on the mountain, not willing to move forward in our, our journey. So in the 1970s, if you went to a guitar store and bought a guitar, or if your mom and pop bought you a little, uh, you know, electric guitar from Sears and Robux, um, one of the first songs that you would ever learn, if you took lessons or not, and the first one you would ask the guy to teach you would be Smoke on the Water. That was that, and so, so all across America, everybody who got an electric guitar, it was and then when you learn that part, you would run into the living room and tell everybody, hey, I can play the guitar. I can play Smoke on the Water. And if it's like, you know, so literally millions of people in America learned the first 40 seconds of Smoke on the Water and never learned the rest of the song. I found an interesting little statistic that only 3% of people who pick up an instrument will go through the work necessary, the sacrifice necessary, to develop the skill to be able to play the song in public. And it's not just because 3% are the only people that have the skill to do it. It all comes down to whether or not we're willing to pay the price. And I think the song is a perfect illustration that a lot of us, we like to imagine with God and we like the first 40 seconds of the idea of God, but the rest of the song we never learn to play because the rest of the song requires a sacrifice. The rest of the song requires hard work. And that's where a lot of us never go further with God. Reimagining our lives will be literally just smoke on the water if we're not willing to pay the price of seeing it fulfilled by following after God. It will be a vapor. It will just be an imagination. It will be just smoke, you know, that never actually becomes and builds into something real, not because God didn't want it to, not because you couldn't have had it happen in your life, not that you couldn't have recovered from that situation, not that you couldn't have you know, moved into this future that God had put on your heart, but because we just weren't willing to pay the price to learn the rest of the song. So Jesus challenges his disciples and us by presenting it this way. In Luke 14, 28, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. I don't know why they would have wanted to build a tower, but he's using the imagination. I mean, I love that. God uses imagination. And he says, so may, what, some of you are reimagining a tower. And he says, so let's, what's the next step? He says, um, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you. This person began to build but wasn't able to finish. See, the journey for re revisioning to reality first stops at a crit critical juncture of asking yourself the question, will I pay the price? 
That's, that's where it happens, and that's the junction that we're in right now. And you know, it's the first time, and maybe the only time I've ever heard Jesus use public opinion or peer pressure as a motivation to do something. He says, how many of you were sitting down and, you know, and, and they're, you know, everybody's going to say, you said you could build it, but you couldn't build it. You know, that he tried, but he didn't follow through because he didn't have what it took. He wasn't willing to pay the price. And see, I believe that's kind of like our legacy. I think that's kind of like the theme that we give our children to say, our spouse to say, the people that we work with to say. I think it's what we leave behind. It's, it's when, when we declare something about God and then we decide not to follow through it, with it. It's, it's what people say as they drive past the construction site and they see that it only elevates a certain amount and it doesn't go all the way. Is that, wow, you know, he, he believed in God, but he just really wasn't willing to pay the price to get where God wanted him to be. You can imagine a better marriage. I think everyone here, even if you have a great marriage, you can imagine an even better marriage. Um, you can imagine financial stability. Um, you can imagine being a doctor. I mean, we all could just imagine being a doctor, or we can imagine being a really good teacher. We can imagine being a community leader running for office. Uh, we can imagine being an awesome parent, you know, who doesn't do that? We, we, we want to just, you know, be an awesome parent. But unless you're willing to pay the cost and face the cost, you'll never build that tower. It will just never, it will just never happen. Um, and, and I know you may be here and you're saying, wait, wait a minute there, Pastor Paul. Isn't there a proverb that says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain? I mean, I was expecting God to do this for me. Isn't that what faith is really all about? Um, I don't know if you've seen buildings being built around Charleston or maybe in another city, but uh, if you've ever watched a building go up, you'll notice that there um, are usually signs put at the job site. And usually what the building is going to be is designated, like in this building, the Smithsonian's building, uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, and, and they'll put their signs out in front of it so that when you drive by, you know what's taking place. And, and so usually a sign of what the building's going to be used for is out front. Uh, it's interesting also the architect will put one out there. So you'll see, you know, the name of the architectural uh, firm that designed the building. They'll have a sign out front. Then you'll go and you'll find another one that the contractor who's actually building it will put one out front. And then you'll also find one where the bank that is financing the job will put one out front. So, you know, the, everybody's got a sign out front. And the interesting thing, if you walk into the banker's office and say, hey, are you guys building any buildings in the Charleston area? Oh, yeah, we got one we're building out there. It's, we're building that one over there. And they'll see the sign. If you go to the contractor, yeah, oh, yeah, we're building a building. We're, we're building the uh, uh, Museum of uh, African American History and Culture. Okay, if you go to the Smithsonian and you say, hey, you guys got any new works, new things that you're building, new museums? Oh, yeah, we're building a museum. And, and everybody that's involved with this will say they're building the building. You know, they're the ones that are building the building. And so, um, but I will tell you this, that... After you've talked to all of them, you'll find out real quick that none of these people are picking up a hammer, especially the banker. I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not picking, there's no banker out there with a sawzall um, or, or a welding, uh, you know, whatever those welding things are. Boy, I'm a real macho guy, aren't I? And you know, so, so the pastor ain't out there building that thing either, I guess. 
Uh, so, but, but everybody believes rightly that they are building the building. But there is somebody who really is constructing the building, and that's the workers. So yes, we are told in Scripture that through grace, God has empowered us to reimagine, and he's given us his strength and the authority to build the building. His sign is at the construction site, kind of looks like that cross over there, and he has put his sign in a verse that we're told in the scripture that he says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, referring to Christ, and that God has laid the foundation that is better than all other foundations for which us to build from, and that is Christ. And so we are building something that God wants us to build. God is building something that he wants us to build. But we are the ones that are told to lift the hammer and to pay the price because he's already financed and architecturally designed and engineered exactly what it's supposed to be with the blood of his son and with the power of his Holy Spirit. See, we imagine the tower that we expect God to build. I mean, that's kind of like what we do. It's like, this, this is the life, I'm just going to expect God to do it. Grace becomes this elaborate excuse for, for not wanting to pay the cost. When life gets difficult, we just say, well, if God wants it to happen, it's going to have to happen. It's like, well, yeah, yeah maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I, um, Grace doesn't tell me to stop putting food in my mouth. I mean, I wish it you know, kind of told me to not eat so much, but it, you know, I don't stop putting food in my mouth because I think Grace is supposed to put it in there for me. Grace never told me not to go to Publix or Piggly Wiggly or Bilo's to get my food and expect it to drop out of heaven. Gas doesn't tell me to stop putting, I mean, Grace doesn't tell me to stop putting gas in my tank. I go, you know, and I, I put the gas in my tank. Grace doesn't tell me not to lock my doors at night. And grace doesn't tell me not to educate my children and that God's going to educate them for me. Neither does God tell me that I don't have to pay the cost of reimagining my life. But for some reason, we just think, no, all you need is faith. And it's like, no, what you need is, is the foundation of faith, the work of Christ that no one else can do, the work of the Holy Spirit that none of us can muster up, but we need to be involved in the actual building of what God has inspired us to do. I love what the prolific author and pastor, Ermund McManus, said. People were giving him a hard time, and, and they, uh, people would say to him, you know, come on, Erwin, you're working so hard. Where's your faith? And I love what he says back to him. He says, I say it's because of my faith that I'm working so hard. See, it, we should be inspired by that cross, to take the life that God has bought for us and begin to work that life. And, and I think this is where a lot of atheists and successful people who don't walk with God kind of look at us kind of screwy. Because they look at our lives and they're like, you know what, I gotta be honest with you, my life's better off than yours. And I don't have your God. And it's like, you know, yeah, you got faith and I got hard work and well, my hard work takes me on vacations. My hard work builds me a nice house. My, my hard work helps me drive a nice car. Your faith hasn't given you anything like that. And I think they may be partially right about their observation is that a lot of us don't realize that our grace 
the grace that God has given us is to compel us to build. But a lot of us are just waiting around for God to, to build it for us. I know this, you may think, well, this sounds a little strong. And I, and I have to warn you, it just gets stronger from this point on. Um, and I would like to say that it wouldn't, but it, it really does. But, but seeing the reality that God wants for your life, it, it gets harder. It gets difficult. To have, to have a great marriage for 35, 40 years, that's work. That's difficult. To get along with one human being and to grow in intimacy with them, that's not a bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. You know, that's not just the waving of the wand. Grace doesn't do that all by itself. It's people who build with grace that that begins to happen. I love what uh, Jesus says. In Matthew 8, verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, because everybody was just chewing up the grace, man, loving it, free bread, people getting healed, you know, I mean, it was perfect. And it was, grace is perfect. And grace is awesome. And it is free. And it's, and it's given to us. And, and the crowds are just following him because, you know, there's just miraculous breadcrumbs all over the place. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, like, like God calling Abraham up on Mount Moriah with his Isaac, Jesus kind of flips around and turns around. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like, you know, this is going to get tough from this point forward. Another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him in a, what appears to be a very rude, insensitive kind of way, but it wasn't, but it was challenging. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In the telling of an, a parable, he continues to hear excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a field, and I, will, I must first go out and see this field. Please excuse me. And another said, I have bought five, oxen of, uh, five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I can't come. My wife won't let me come. Boy, that marriage is going in the right direction, isn't it? <laughs> Good luck going fishing, pal. You know. And then Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus carried his cross, which laid the foundation for all of us to build, but then the rest of the journey is we gotta carry it. And not by ourselves, we are empowered by the Spirit and we are reminded by his grace. But he's like, this is gonna be hard. I know you like the free bread. I know you like the walking on the water. And I know you like the fish. And you don't want to fish anymore because now I can make fish fill up a net. It's like, no, that's not what I was saying when I did that. I was just showing you I had authority to tell you what your next step was. I wasn't setting a new paradigm that Christians sit around and wait for grace. You know, and if you're stuck someplace, and, and let me just say, if you're stuck, you can be stuck in grief. And you're just praying to God to help you move through it. I'm like, get up and get counseling. I mean, God doesn't want you stuck in grief. But I lost a child. I lost a loved one. I lost somebody important in my life. It's like, yeah, that is hard. That is your Mount Moriah. 
But that's not where life is supposed to end. And so, you know, for some of us, we just get stuck there because it's too hard to revisit it. The victimization, the, the loss, the difficulty, the mistake. It's too hard for us to face the pain of the situation. And we get stuck with the knife out and the Isaac there, and we just don't go any further. Too often, we are cashing tomorrow's success on today's pleasure. Um, we want to avoid hard choices in America. Well, that's too hard. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to tell people I don't agree with them. I don't want to make that hard choice. I want to enjoy it now. It's like, well, no, you need to put money away, or you need to invest in this, or you, you need to go to college, or you need to go to trade school, or you need to... It's like, no, 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 if God wants me to be a doctor, he'll make me a doctor. I dare you to go to that doctor. I'm serious. I dare you to go to the doctor that his only qualification is that he imagined that he was supposed to be a doctor by God, and he waited on God for him to become a doctor. We want to avoid, we want happiness to pave the way. It's like, I want, I want Isaac, God, and this knife, this knife, that's not very godlike. What would Jesus say about the knife, God? That is not the Jesus I believe in. Jesus doesn't make me make hard choices between his plan and your plan and my Isaac and, and your plan for my life. Well, what about when Jesus all of a sudden whips around and tells a group of people, unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband, and your children, you'll have nothing to do with me. Now, what do we know for sure? God has always told us to honor our parents. God has told us to love our wives and lay down our lives for it. He's always told us to honor our husbands. He's always told us to raise up our children the way of the Lord and not to exasperate. So we know God loves all those relationships. But he also knows that those things can become Isaacs for us. The way that we parent, the way that we do things. And that when God comes along and all of a sudden in a difficult place, God will say, listen, your Isaac and my plan, they're kind of like bumping right now. And, and we're going to need to talk about where you're going in your life. Um, we want our Isaac without obeying God. We want to avoid conflicts. We don't want to have to tell our 40-year-old son to get the heck out. You know? We don't want to have to do that. That's too hard. That's not what parents do. You know, let me just tell you. We don't... <laughs> parenting, um, what an interesting subject that is, is that uh, some of us either because we've been victimized by our parents, baby boomer parents, because they hit us too hard or whatever they did, because we never processed it and came down the mountain God's way with that and never dealt with that, we decided we're not going to discipline our children. I am never going to hit my kids. I am never going to make him, you know, cry or go into the corner or take something away. I'm not going to do what my parents did to me. I'm never going to. I want my kid to be my best friend. Well, you go ahead and raise your little monster, okay? Because maybe you don't have the guts to correct Isaac, but don't worry. He'll be incarcerated at about the age of 18, and your society will take up the responsibility of putting your little monster in a place where he can be controlled. All because I didn't want to do the hard job of my child not being my best friend. You know, or because I had a negative experience in parenting from my parent, I would never dealt with it. Therefore, it has affected my journey from this point forward. 
Your tower is your life. And if you are envisioning a tower that is inspired by God, I'm telling you, his grace and his spirit um, are on your construction site. He's got his sign right out in front of it, and he's got his spirit to put in you and to empower you so that it's not by might, not by your own strength, but by his spirit is what God is saying into your life. But you're still going to be the person who's going to pick up the hammer. So let me ask you, will you build? Um, Will you pay the price to move forward? Um, in, in, I'm not a person who has a really large faith. And I know that may surprise you to say that as a pastor, but I'm not, I'm not inclined to believe things. And in difficult times, I, I'm not like super God, yay, yay, rah, rah, let's go God. He's going to do this for me kind of thing. Um, and that's it's who I am, and God loves me, so don't judge me, but God loves me. And, um, but people would tell me things like uh, uh, their bladder cancer got healed. And I would be like, okay, I want to hear the story. Your bladder cancer got healed. Yeah. Yeah, I did three rounds of chemotherapy for three years, and now my cancer's gone. And I'd be like, that's not a miracle. That's science. You know, that's, that's not God. And then I saw this, this verse differently than I ever saw it before because of my own injury kind of thrusted me into this, this world. And it, and it says, God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes, for those who love God. And the verse says, God causes all things to work together. And you usually think the, the all things are what? Cancer, losing a job, a divorce, hardship. God causes all hardships to work together for good. That's not what the verse says. It says that God causes all things to work together for good. What's that mean? And chemotherapy, and physical therapy, and acupuncture, and massage, and I mean, these are all the things that I've, I've started going through, and injections in your back, and getting up and walking, and controlling my, my eating, and working on my muscles, and getting out of bed, and all this. it's like, no, God causes all things that when we pick up the hammer of, and to do the things that need to be done, whether it's in parenting or whether it's in our marriages, and we're willing to do the hard things, God says, I'll take all that stuff, you know, the supernatural stuff, the science stuff, and all of it, and I will do a work in your life. As you begin to work, I will cause all things to work together. In your, tomorrow, I'm getting an injection in my back, and they're putting this injection in T5. Now, T5 is like right behind my heart, okay? And the, the space in your vertebrae and underneath the facet and all that stuff is so small that that's why they don't do these normally. But if I want to not have pain there all the time, I got to be willing to risk them going. And, and doctors already said, listen, I may get in there and find out the needle. I can't get the needle to not go in your spinal column and, and stop your whatever from working in the middle of it. And you say, why would you do something like that? It's because I envision a life where God heals my back. And, uh, and I was told all things will work together for good. So... I'm willing to climb that mountain and have this wonderful doctor stick that needle in my back. And I tell you what, if it works, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna say, thank you, doctor. You are awesome. 
And then I'm gonna get on my knees and I'm gonna thank God of heaven for bringing relief into my life. It's like, oh, wait a minute. It was the doctor. It's like, nah, all things work together for good. For some of us here, the healing that you need may mean stop taking those painkillers. And maybe it's time for you to go out for a walk. Maybe you need to go to physical therapy. Maybe you lost a child and you need to go to counseling. Well, I can't, it's too much pain. Well, you need, your future needs you to risk it, to do the difficult thing. Well, maybe, you know, working on that marriage will require you to take a step and to do something that's not orthodox. You know, maybe you'll have to sell your house and move and you don't know how you're gonna make the money. And, and, and let me just say the journey for all of us, there's a point when the Isaac is identified by God and God says, listen, you gotta get past this Isaac. And it could be bitterness, it could be an addiction, it can be a victimization, something somebody did to you that you are just circling and circling and circling or a loss. And God's like, we gotta do the hard thing here. If you wanna build this thing, I remember just laying in bed for the first couple of days after the injury kind of presented itself um, real hard and difficult. And I just was like curled up with ice on my back. God heal me, 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 God heal me. Oh, I hate my life, I hate my life, I'm depressed, I'm depressed. God heal me, God heal me, give me some uh, hydrocodone, give me some whatever it is, give me, I hate my life. And my back was just screaming, screaming, screaming. And you know what God, you know what God told me to do? Get up and go out and take a walk. It's like, don't confuse it with, well, no. Maybe it was the same as rise up and be healed. He's like, but I need you to get up and I need you to walk. Will that fix it? Let's just start with you walking and getting out there and just praise me while you're walking. Here I am six months later, the pain is diminished. Um, the injury's still there, but the amount of life I have experienced in the last three months is phenomenal. Um, are there still moments when I find myself in bed? Yeah. Are there still times when I have to take whatever pain medicine I have to take? Yeah. But that is not the definition of my life. And so today, you may know already what your Mariah is. I mean, not your Mariah, but your Isaac is. You know? And it may be a child that God is like, listen, you're just building your life around that child. You need to build it around me. Or maybe it's your friendship with your child. You don't want to bruise them by telling them no. And you're ruining them. Maybe um, God wants you to pay the price of a great marriage. They're not easy. But when you have a great marriage, 35 years later, they are amazing. They are amazing. It's not easy to get out of debt. Um, it's not easy to... Uh, hear from God sometimes. But if you're willing to pay the price to build the tower, you will not be disappointed by what God does in your life. In the words of James the Apostle, which are contested by theologians for, his, for, for as long as Christianity has been around, the Apostle James said in chapter 2, verse 14, Martin Luther didn't even have it in his Bible. Faith without works is dead. And God is true today. That faith alone will not get it done. Faith gets it started. Faith empowers it. 
And it can never get done without faith. But then there's a point when the building gets done. You could phrase faith without works a different way. Is that when we are not willing to build, to count the cost, willing to sacrifice, our faith is just smoke on the water. It's just the first 40 seconds of a great song, of a great life that God wants to build. If you're willing to learn how to play. Fathers, we're in this moment now. You have cut deep into a lot of us. And God, some of us even feel at this moment even violated. How dare you talk to me about my pain? How dare you talk to me about the victimization? How dare you tell me about that loss in my life that I need to get over it? But that's not what you said. You called us to build in the midst of it. Because Abraham believed that if he killed Isaac, that the same God who had given him Isaac would raise him from the dead. But today, you call us to build in faith, to pick up our cross, and to begin to walk through the adversity of our lives. And if we're willing to do it, the tower will be complete, and the legacy will be left, and people will look at our lives and will know our lives that have been completed by God. So Father, today we dare, as we take the broken bread and we dip it in the cup that represent the cost that was paid, the foundation that was laid, the chief cornerstone. God, today we take it not just to taste heaven, but to use it as a foundation for the life that you're building in us through the power of your spirit. No longer will grace be my excuse grace will be my power. Let me encourage you to come and receive the body and blood of Christ. Let me encourage you to whatever it is, whatever Isaac that you have that God has pointed out to you, to pin it to the cross today. Let me encourage you to dare to take the step, to take out the knife, and to allow with God whatever it has happened in your life to die and to be resurrected anew through Jesus Christ.